This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me this evening to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Interesting transition uh, in this letter, 2 Corinthians, that takes place between the end of chapter 7, uh, which is, is, a, is a personal appeal on Paul's part that concludes a section of the letter in which he is trying to win for himself uh, or re-win for himself a place in the hearts and, and the trust of the Christians in Corinth, a uh, very personal uh, and impassioned appeal. And uh, we come to chapter 8 of verse 1, and it takes a very different change of tone. Any number of reasons for that. One is just the subject matter, uh, as Paul takes it up. Two is... Uh, that it may well be that Paul has left the letter and come back to it. Um, we don't perhaps do that so much with emails, although we might. might write a draft of an email and save it and go back later and reread it, edit it and add to it or continue it before you send it. Certainly in the days of writing letters, someone might write some and set it aside and come back the next day even or several days later and resume the letter. And they're in a very different mood and they're thinking about different things and uh, so even within one letter, you can have a difference in, in tone and in temperament in, and certainly in subject matter. And uh, we do seem to see that in Paul's letters, which again reminds us uh, that they were letters. They were, they were written uh, in the midst of the ups and downs, the vicissitudes of life and various things that were going on in Paul's life, as well as the lives of those to whom he wrote. And so let's look then at Second Corinthians chapter 8. We'll read verses 1 through 15. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this manner I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. 
For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your blessing as we study your word. We pray that you would open our eyes, our hearts, feed us, teach us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why would we give away our money? Ever thought about that? Why would anybody give away their money? After all, they've worked hard for it. For the vast majority of people, we could always use it. And even if we don't need it for immediate and pressing needs, we need it to store up uh, resources for ourselves for the future. So why would we give something we've worked so hard for and something that we need? Well, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians and changes subjects here to this matter of giving, he has to address that point. Uh, he has to begin to talk to them about something that uh, in our own day, as well as his, is the most delicate subject, that is people, their money, and what they do with it. Uh, the Bible obviously has a great deal to say about money. And as Paul's writing here, he's writing about something very particular. We're going to look at some examples that he uses, uh, that he gives to the Corinthians and to us. Uh, but we need to remember that Paul is writing about a very specific occurrence, uh, a very specific need, a very specific offering that was being collected. For early on after his conversion, Paul had a burden for the Christians in the city of Jerusalem, many of whom were greatly impoverished because of their allegiance to Christ, uh, and more so in many ways than believers in other places in the Roman Empire, Gentile Christians, because these Jewish believers in Jerusalem, the very heart of Judaism, suffered more than many because of their profession. After all, they were there where uh, Judaism reigned supreme, and their acceptance in Jerusalem society uh, and in fact, in many ways, their employability was affected by their new allegiance to Christ. Uh, and so they suffered. And Paul recognizes that as uh, a Jewish Christian himself, but one who has benefited from their witness, not being a believer from early on, he is in many ways indebted to those Jewish believers in Jerusalem who were suffering for their faith. And many times in Paul's letters and in the book of Acts, we see his burden for uh, the relief of his brothers and sisters in the city of Jerusalem who were suffering. In fact, one, at one point he speaks of how uh, that we have been blessed spiritually by them, and therefore we are indebted to them materially for the spiritual blessings that we have received from them. Well, it's that offering that he collected from various places uh, on his journeys to send back, and as it turned out, to take back uh, to Jerusalem that Paul is writing about here. 
And as he does so, as he's writing to these Corinthian Christians about this matter of this gift, this collection taken for the relief of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, he sets before them two examples uh, to motivate them, to encourage them, to spur their thinking about uh, giving to support the believers in Jerusalem. And the two examples that he gives to them, and then he gives to us to think about here as we think about our own giving and our own generosity. First is the example of the Christians in Macedonia. Now, you can pull out a Bible map in the back of your Bible, uh, one of Paul's missionary journeys, and see where Macedonia is. Basically, it involved, as far as churches we'd be, be, be familiar with, that are mentioned in Scripture, uh, Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, and uh, Berea, uh, those were churches that you'd be familiar with that were in the Macedonian area. And so that's the first thing that Paul does is point to their example. He does this in the first eight verses of this passage, uh, pointing to them and then making some applications out of it. So the first thing that he draws their attention to is the poverty of these Macedonian Christians. Look at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, Paul points to their affliction, uh, that they themselves were, like the Jerusalem Christians, were impoverished. Uh, as he speaks of that, he, he speaks of it as a severe test of affliction and refers, hints at this in verse 3, referring to giving beyond their means. It's interesting if you study the two letters that we have to the church in Thessalonica, First and Second Thessalonians, or the, the letter to the Philippians, Paul never warns them about the danger of riches. There's no need to. Paul was always sensitive of the context and the spiritual difficulties of the churches to which he wrote. He wrote to Corinth and he warned them against the prevailing uh, sexual immorality that was all around them in that city. He wrote to the Galatians and dealt with the Judaizers that had come through and were basically saying, yes, you've got to be Christian, but you also have to be Jewish too. Uh, but when he writes to Philippi, he, he doesn't admonish them about money. And when he writes to First and Second Thessalonians, uh, writes First and Second Thessalonians, he doesn't have to to warn them, speak to them. Uh, he doesn't have to enforce or, or emphasize to the wealthy uh, their responsibility with their money because apparently they weren't there. Uh, and so their poverty is something that Paul is struck by. But in the midst of the poverty, poverty, the, the example of their generosity again, second part of verse two. Uh, Paul says, out of their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. And so Paul says, here they are, they don't have anything, they don't have very much at all, barely making it themselves, and yet there's this outpouring of generosity on their part. To meet the needs of those who were in Jerusalem. The poor giving to provide for the relief of the poor. Now he goes on then. He's also struck by their heart. Their, their poverty but the generosity overflowing uh, flowing out of that poverty. And then he speaks of their heart in verses 4. Well the end of verse 3 and then 4 and 5. He says they gave in the end of verse 3 of their own free will. 
begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints in this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now notice Paul says here they gave of their own will, begging us earnestly. This was not Paul begging them, please give, please be aware of the need, please find it within yourselves to give. In fact, the language almost suggests that Paul may have tried to discourage them. You know, look, you need to keep what you have. You're barely making it as it is. But it says that they begged Paul. For what? For the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You see, there was no begrudging, you know, pulling up some change from the pockets here, throwing it in the plate. Uh, They begged Paul earnestly for what they saw as the favor, the opportunity to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And Paul says here that it's not just... um, Uh, Just a detached, impersonal kind of thing. But in verse 5, this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so their giving was not something detached from their overall discipleship. There was a devotion to the Lord and, in fact, a devotion to Paul and a commitment to him uh, that was the the setting in which that their their desire to take part in this offering uh, was couched. And so Paul refers to the example of the Macedonians, not only their poverty, but the generosity that came out of that poverty, giving beyond their means, a sacrificial giving, uh, and then the heart that they showed in that, the desire for it. And then he draws a few applications of that. Look at verse uh, 6. Paul says, Accordingly, we urge Titus, as that he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Paul had sent Titus to present the need to them and to uh, get them started with this. And that happened, and uh, Paul reminds them of that. And he says in verse 7, As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, we think of the Corinthian church, and we think of its problems, and they were there. Uh, But as you read this letter, and more so 1 Corinthians, which really is more about the church uh, and not where Second Corinthians is more about Paul and his relationship to the church and their relationship to him. But First Corinthians is the one where we really get a feel for the church, the strengths, the weaknesses, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, but as you read First Corinthians, you have to be struck by the fact that this is a this is a, a powerful church, a very blessed church, a very capable church, a great deal there that's very good, uh, and and their their community their. Uh, there's spiritual gifts, all of these things. Uh, there was strength there as well as some real weaknesses. And Paul acknowledges that. He says, as you excel in everything, in their faith, in their speech, in their knowledge, in their earnestness, and, Paul says, in our love for you, kind of hinting back at the things that he wrote to them uh, in chapter 7, uh, see that you excel in this act of grace. Paul reminds them this isn't, uh, just some some good work done in isolation, but as a fruit of God's grace, this act of grace also. Paul says you excel in so many ways. See to it that you excel in this also. And that application certainly goes to us um, as a church, to us as Christians, us as a congregation. Uh, certainly, I would I would argue that as a congregation, we excel in many ways. 
but to be a well-rounded, uh, well-fleshed-out congregation, we should be a generous congregation also, which is an expression of God's grace in us. Uh, one other point of application, verse 8, Paul says, I say this not as a command. Now, the very fact he says that implies that he could command, that he has the authority to command them, but he's not speaking. He says, he's quick to point out, I'm not commanding you to do anything here, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And so he's, he's pointing them to the example of the Macedonians. So disadvantaged, in comparison with the church in Corinth, and yet such a heart for the Lord, a heart for their brothers and sisters in Christ, and such generosity that came out of nothing. Uh, Paul is just saying, just keep that in mind, that example uh, in your mind, and let that earnestness of others uh, move you to show that your love, too, for the Lord and for the church is genuine. Um, You know, it's interesting, as far as a specific application here, thinking about this text, thinking what this says to us, uh, one specific application, I think, that that would arise from here, and I think is is quite pertinent to this passage, is our own deacon's fund. Uh, We occasionally make appeals for the deacon's fund. In fact, the deacon's fund has never been fully funded. Uh, The deacon's fund is very active. It, It is useful ministering to people in this church. Now, you may look around and think, well, everybody here is fine. We're all, you know, at least well off, if not wealthy. Well, the deacon's fund is used to minister and provide for people in this church, to help out people. And I would say to you, uh, as I've said to others, we don't want anyone in this church to face, you know, a bill they can't pay or some financial difficulty. Uh, And there's certainly nothing wrong with saying, I need some help here, uh, except having to lower our pride, and that in itself is not a bad thing. Um, but the deacon's fund has made it as we've had surpluses in the budget, and the deacons occasionally review any surplus we have and how that would be appropriated. Uh, often a, a big chunk would go toward paying down our building mortgage uh, for this building, which, by the way, is under 300000 now, uh, so we're excited about that. It's coming down. But it, it's never made it on gifts to the deacon's fund itself. But that is a way, a very specific way, of ministering to one another, providing for one another. Now, we do use it to provide for people outside the church as well. People come to the church asking for help. The deacons don't hand out money. The deacons have some specific requirements that people we help meet some uh, guidelines, including being present with us in worship, uh, including making their finances known, and the deacons evaluate that. We don't just hand money out to people who come and ask. We try to be very responsible with the money of the deacons' fund. Uh, in ministering to people both outside the church and within the church, some accountability, some expectations there of those who receive that help. Uh, but I just want to put that before you and uh, encourage you and myself to be generous and not just let the, the appeal go in one ear and out the other. That is a very real and tangible way of helping one another. And so I uh, put that before you as kind of an extension of of this, what this passage is saying, not and not even talking about just general giving to the church, but particular relief of of those who could use the help. And so, just to bear that in mind. But the example of the Macedonians is just one example that Paul uses. There's a second example that he uses, and that is the example of Jesus Himself. Look at verse nine. Paul says, "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor." so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul describes this glorious exchange 
Uh, again, using the word grace, which occurs several times in this passage, the grace of Christ, because this was not something that we deserved. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, far from Jesus humbling himself on our behalf, uh, we deserve to be humbled deeply before him for our sins. But Paul refers to the grace of Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. No one was ever richer than Christ. No one became poorer than Christ. Uh, when you look at the tremendous, uh, almost inconceivable distance between his rich estate and the poverty to which he came, uh, though he was rich, and by the way, that statement implies his pre-existence uh, prior to his incarnation. Uh, Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, did exist. He, he was there. Uh, prior to being born uh, at Bethlehem, taking on a human nature and a human flesh. But Paul points to that. Though he was rich, there in the glories of heaven, uh, the majesty uh, on high, the worship of the angels, yet for your sake he became poor. For your sake, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That exchange, Christ going from the, the, the wealth of glory to poverty for, for us, that through his poverty we might become wealthy, that we would partake in that, that glorious, rich wealth that was his in heaven. And so he sets that before them. And then Paul begins to, uh, describing that exchange, uh, draw some applications for it. First one is the impresses on the Corinthians the importance of completing the task. And then we try to teach our children, you know, finish what you start. Don't, don't leave things half done. Well, that's in essence what Paul is saying to them here. Verse 10, and this is, in this matter, I give my judgment. Again, not a command, but his, his opinion. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Apparently, this had gotten started some time before, but had, had, had ground to a halt uh, for whatever reason, probably uh, because of the distraction of these false apostles, false teachers who had come in, who had begun to call Paul into question. Of course, all of this project associated with Paul, maybe they thought, well, you know, if Paul's not what we thought he was. Maybe we should not be raising funds to uh, entrust to him. Uh, so that's a possibility, that the whole dissension that arose over Paul and uh, his, his authority and his standing uh, led to the abandonment of this project. Uh, it could just be human nature. The thing just lost steam and, and you know, through, through no deliberate decision, it was kind of left behind and no one had taken up the mantle for it. Well, Paul says you need to finish it. You have begun it. You need to complete the task. Now, Paul hints here that this isn't just a matter of an outward work completed. This is a matter of the heart. Look at verse 11. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it you, you, you were ready to do it. You wanted to do it. There was the heart for it, the desire for it, maybe matched by your completing it out of what you have. If the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has. So Paul's pointing out their heart. You wanted to do this. You had the heart for it, like the Macedonians. Uh, we'll, we'll fulfill that by bringing it to completion. And we need to always remember that that is an important part of giving, uh, is the heart. Remember Jesus 
with the uh, the widow uh, was impressed not so much by the large gifts that people gave, but by this small gift that the widow gave, because for her it was a matter of great sacrifice, just like it was for these Macedonians. Percentage-wise, it was for her an immense gift, far more impressive to Jesus than the actual large dollar amounts that were being given. You see, the Lord sees the heart. The Lord uh, evaluates based on the intention of the heart. They've heard the story about the worship service in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, where a man in the pew accidentally put into the plate a, a crown piece rather than a penny. And as the usher was there, he discreetly explained to the usher his mistake and asked if he might have his crown piece back. And the usher looked at him and replied, in once, in forever. The man said, well, at least I'll get credit in heaven for it. And the usher replied, no, you won't. You'll get credit for a penny. That was the intent of his heart. And the Lord sees the heart. Well, point well taken. Uh, the Lord reckons based on what we're doing with the heart. And Jesus was impressed with the widow and the widow's might. And Paul's pointing to their heart, the readiness there, the desire to do this task. He said, well, follow through, complete it. Your heart was there, uh, complete the task. But also, it's a matter of proportion. Completing the task, not just the heart, but also proportion. Look at verse 12. According to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Paul is saying here that uh, unlike the Macedonians, he's not asking them to necessarily give sacrificially, uh, even with the Macedonians. He said they gave according to their means and even beyond their means. And Paul's saying give according to your means, give proportionally. Uh, he's leaving if they want to go beyond that up to them. He's not even requiring that, not even suggesting that to them. Just give according to what you have. Those of you who have more will be able to donate more. Those of you who have less may donate less. But again, it's ultimately the heart that's uh, important here. And if they want to give sacrificially, uh, certainly they can do that. So that's Paul's application to complete the task according to their heart, according to how God has blessed them. But he also brings up another point of application here, the whole principle of equity. This is a little bit of a difficult passage. Different, the, the word here is translated ESV, fair, ESV fairness. Sometimes it could be translated equity or equality. Uh, and all of those can be slightly misleading, uh, but probably the best ways we can translate it. But let's look at it. This whole matter of equity in the church. Uh, look at verse 13. Paul says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance should supply your need, may supply your need as there may be that there may be fairness. Well, Paul is um, not saying that it's wrong for one person to have more than another. Uh, he's not advocating some sort of communist system here. And we know even from the book of Acts that uh, while there was the record of their generosity to one another, even that, um, their selling and, and using the money to meet the needs of one another uh, itself implies and even endorses the private ownership of, of property. And the whole business with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, the, 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 the problem was not that they kept back part of the proceeds from the sale of property, uh, the problem was that they represented what they gave as the entirety of it. It was not stinginess that uh, led to their dropping dead. 
it was uh, lying. It was deceitfulness. And Peter even makes the, the point. He says, you know, that the proceeds you had from the sale was yours to do with as you pleased. It was your property. You had the right to determine if you gave it, spent it, you know, went on a trip with it, whatever. But you don't dare give it to the church and represent it for what it's not. The entirety rather than a fraction of the sale of the proceeds from the sale. And so Paul is saying this here. Uh, he's not saying that we, we have an obligation to level out so that we all have exactly the same amount. Calvin, in his commentary, acknowledges that, that the Lord blesses some with an abundance, as Paul says in Timothy, to enjoy. Well, what's Paul saying here? Uh, he's saying so that their abundance, uh, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness or equity. Uh, the point here is that we should not have Christians on the one hand who are storing up all kinds of wealth and have an excess of what they need, money they don't even know what to do with, while on the other hand you have Christians who are going hungry, who don't have, even have the basic necessities of life. What is wrong with that picture? That's not saying that they should become equal, but it is saying that it's wrong on the one hand to have abundance here and poverty over here, but to supply the needs of Christians, to provide for them uh, so that they, they have enough. And, and Paul makes the point, after all, your abundance in the present time supplying their need may one day result in their abundance supplying your need, which is kind of a take on what Paul had spoken of about uh, the, the spiritual blessing from the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, placing on the Gentile believers some obligation to meet physical needs. Paul, Paul had a great sense of indebtedness spiritually. And if he could repay that materially, he was happy to do that. So I think that what Paul is saying there applies not only just to financial stuff, but to uh, spiritual and financial blessing as well. But primarily here, financial. You don't want to have Christians who have excess and abundance on the one hand, and Christians who are starving on the other hand. And he he draws an Old Testament uh, connection here. Verse 15 As it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. He draws uh, from the example of the manna, uh, that they all had enough to eat. Uh, And in fact, with the manna, uh, people who tried to store up too much and keep it found that it spoiled, that it went bad. You couldn't keep it. You had enough for that day's provision. And then uh, on the day before the Sabbath, you did store up extra and kept it through the Sabbath, and it was preserved. You weren't to go out and gather it on the Sabbath. Um, but otherwise, to try to preserve it and keep it, it, it just spoiled and went bad. And so that's the principle Paul draws on here, just kind of that idea of the manna. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, that's a delicate question. Uh, how much is too much? Uh, how much should you give? Uh, how much should you try to relieve those who don't have as much as you do? And it calls for wisdom, calls for prayer, calls for uh, examination of one's own conscience before the Lord. Uh, but I think we would agree that it's wrong to have an excess while others don't have enough. Again, not absolute equality, uh, but wisdom and compassion before the Lord to provide for brothers and sisters who are in need. And Paul appeals to that as he writes to these Corinthian Christians who lived in a very prosperous place, many of whom were well off. And he just says, just keep that in mind. Just be aware of that, that there's great need here, and you have the abundance that can help relieve that need. 
Well, we mentioned that the word grace occurs uh, several times here in this passage. Uh, the grace of the gospel, uh, the grace of God in us, has a way of making us generous. We recognize that we have received an immense treasure in the gospel. Uh, as Paul refers to the example of Christ, the grace of, of Christ in making himself poor and suffering what he did and giving up what he did uh, in order to make us wealthy. The grace of the gospel makes us generous. I'll just close with one example of that uh, that struck me because I actually read it this morning in my devotions time, devotional time reading through the Gospel of Luke. And that's the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector and he was rich. Luke tells us that. A man with a lot of money. Uh, much of it perhaps acquired uh, in maybe some underhanded ways, as we've talked about the tax collector, sometimes uh, yielded to the temptation to collect more than Rome actually required and pocket and the difference and enrich themselves. And uh, Zacchaeus' own words seem to imply that some of that was at work. Well, of course, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. Being a uh, vertically challenged person, uh, needed to climb up in a tree in order to see Jesus as he went past, and uh, Jesus comes to him and speaks to him. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus did, receive Jesus joyfully. The usual crowd grumbled and said, well, you see, Jesus is gone to be the guest of a, well, a sinner. But Zacchaeus, on the other hand, in Luke 19, verse 8, says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You see, the grace of God changes the way we think about money. It changed Zacchaeus from a man who it's pretty strongly hinted at, collected and amassed wealth dishonestly to someone who was willing to give, someone who was willing to give away, someone who was able to re- willing to restore fourfold uh, that which he had taken wrong. Well, what's Jesus' response to that? What does Jesus say about that? Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. What was the fruit of Zacchaeus' conversion? The fruit was, he was a generous man, changed, just like that. You see, the grace of God makes us generous. We have received abundantly. As God's people, we we give abundantly. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make to the church in Corinth, and to this church here in Duluth. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have so richly blessed us in all kinds of ways, including Lord financially, and we thank you for that. Thank you for providing for us in various ways. Father, we want to steward wisely the money you have entrusted to us. We thank you, Father, that you give to us, as Paul wrote to, uh, in Timothy, in First Timothy, to enjoy. But, Father, we thank you for your grace uh, to us in giving and providing us for what we so desperately needed. And I pray for myself, I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would keep us from grasping money tightly, keep us from being fearful about money, but to trust you. Uh, give us eyes of compassion, Lord, to see opportunities to provide for those who are in need, Because we never know, Father, when they might be in a position to bless us and provide for us. But most of all, Father, because you've blessed us and provided for us and because we want to imitate you. And we certainly want to show forth the reality 
of your grace in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.